This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a sermon from Duke Kwan. Duke Kwan serves as lead pastor at Grace Meridian Hill, a cross-cultural neighborhood church located in one of the most ethnically and economically diverse parts of Washington, D.C. This sermon was originally recorded in June 2017 at the PCA General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina. Fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers and children, it's a joy And it's an honor to bring God's word to you this evening. It's also, of course, a humbling task to preach to preachers, to preach to so many of you who have taught me to preach, whether by your instruction or by your example, which, of course, is just another way to say, if this doesn't go well, then it's all your fault. (laughs) As we come to the close of this General Assembly, let's let God have the last word as we turn to his word. Please bow your heads in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you will be faithful to all your promises contained in your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit, and that you would bless this word which you call the sword of the Spirit. And so come now and cut us to the heart with truth, with good news, with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I can still picture in my mind the dining table in my childhood home. I can almost still feel the coolness of the wrought iron under my toes, which I would mindlessly run up and down the table's legs. I can still see the rings of milk that I'd leave on the glass tabletop, the messy, sloppy drinker that I was. And speaking of milk, I remember pouting at that table often whenever I was told by my mom that I wouldn't be excused until I finished the black mushrooms or the tripe on my plate, which I absolutely hated to eat, and I'd secretly slip the tripe into my cup of milk in a sorry attempt to sneak it past her. Of course, it never worked. I can still hear my parents 
engaged in lively conversation in Korean, of course, which meant I never understood all of it, but that was okay. Their voices served as a familiar dinner soundtrack. I remember vividly some tearful conversations I shared with my family while seated at that very table as a teenager and also as an adult. And I remember the Dunn family often showing up unannounced and joining us for dinner because that's what friends do. Tables and the meals we share on tables and the company that we keep and make around these tables. Tables are full of meaning. Sometimes they leave a lasting imprint on our lives. And that's because dining tables are platforms for intimacy. They force you to stop and they pull you in close to one another. They're places of honesty. They invite us to face each other and tell the truth. Tables are places of vulnerability, too. By the very act of eating, eaters are confessing their life and death dependency on food, aren't they? And so it shouldn't surprise us then to discover how much ministry Jesus conducted over meals served at tables. As one author observes in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And that isn't because Jesus is so hungry, of course, it's because in these meals and around these tables, Jesus was giving glimpses of his kingdom. In his very good book, Meals with Jesus, Tim Chester writes, the meals of Jesus are windows into his message of grace and the way it defines his community and its mission. The meals of Jesus are a window into his message and ministry. What then do we see through that window in this passage? Well, first of all, we see a table of honesty. A table of honesty. The story begins and you immediately sense trouble. First, verse 1 tells us Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Second, it's the Sabbath, which for the Pharisees was to be observed very strictly. And third, there's a sick man in the room seeking healing. And everyone is staring at Jesus, waiting to see what he's going to do. Now look, any time you find Jesus some Pharisees, a sick person in a room together on the Sabbath, you can almost hear Michael Buffett's voice in the background. Let's get ready to rumble. But Jesus wasn't interested in a fight. He was more interested in helping this sick man who had dropsy, we're told in verse 2 which was a miserable medical condition. 
It involved internal swelling due to abnormal accumulation of fluid in the organs. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus took him and he healed him. But don't miss this. Jesus is just as concerned about the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. They were sick, too, in their souls. You might say the Pharisees suffered from spiritual dropsy, the swelling of pride due to the abnormal accumulation of self-righteousness in their hearts. We see multiple symptoms, as it were, of this spiritual disease called self-righteousness, even in these first few verses. Did you notice them? Verse 1 tells us the Pharisees were watching Jesus very carefully. See, because self-righteousness makes you eager to catch people in their wrongs, rooting for their failure so that you might come out looking good. Calvin comments that their desire of finding fault is stronger than their zeal for the law. Self-righteousness also makes you refuse to repent. Jesus challenges the Pharisees, but in verse 4 we're told they remained silent. And in verse 6, they could not reply to these things You know why? Because in our self-righteousness, we'll do anything to avoid admitting we're wrong. Every weekday morning, it's my job to drop off my two oldest kids at school. And we are running late all the time. But recently, I started noticing how differently I respond to those situations when we're late because of them and when we're late because of me. And when we're late because of my kids, they're getting a lecture in the car. It's, come on guys, you're late again. You've gotta be quicker next time. You can do better. Now, when it's my fault, when we're late because my morning shower went a little bit long, it's, Hey, we're a team. (laughs) This isn't anybody's fault. We're in it together. We win together. We lose together. All right? It's the old, if you can't beat them, change the rules of the game trick, right? In our self-righteousness, we'll do anything we can to avoid admitting we're wrong. Self-righteousness also pursues loyalty to principles over the love of people. According to ancient sources, people who suffered from dropsy were bloated, but paradoxically, they were dying of thirst. I mean, everyone is right there at the table. The least they could do is to give this suffering man a drink. But none of this seems to matter to the Pharisees, does it? Zero, zero compassion. 
That's why in verse 5, Jesus cites what the Westminster divines described as the Sabbath duties of necessity and mercy. But notice how he appeals to their sensibilities as fathers. Which of you, having a son that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately, urgently, with tears, with love, pull him out? But they were too busy using this man's pain to prove a point. Because self-righteousness always makes you blind to other people's burdens. These first couple of verses give us a clear view of self-righteousness. But I hope you didn't miss it. We're also given a clear glimpse of amazing Grace. Where has Jesus been this entire time? Sitting at the table. With whom? The Pharisees. Friends, how does Jesus treat self-righteous sinners like you and me? He dines with us. He offers fellowship to us. He pursues us. As one commentator notes, less conspicuous but no less present in this passage is the occasion for divine restoration offered by Jesus to his table companions. The very act of eating with these legal experts and Pharisees conveys within it the potential for redemption. Yes, as you well know, Jesus never gave up on tax collectors and sinners. He ate with them. But did you know he never gives up on the Pharisees either? He pursues them in love. He debates them, challenges them, engages them. He sits with them. And he never gives up on recovering Pharisees like you and me either. That's good news. The taste of grace gives us courage to be honest about our sins, doesn't it? After all, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It leads us to repentance not only personally and individually, but also corporately, which maybe makes us ask at this time, what would it look like for the PCA to be known for its honesty about its sin? Not about the sin of others, and not our theology of sin, but our own actual transgression. Or more specifically, what would it be like for the PCA to be famous for its repentance for self-righteousness? The grace of Jesus can do that, you know. First, we see a table of honesty. Secondly, we see a table of humility. And this will be brief. In the next part of the story, Jesus speaks to the guests at the table. 
We're told in verse 7, he, he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And if you lived in that time and culture, you would know that he's referring to the seats closest to the host. Where you sat at a meal in that time was a big deal. It reflected and it reinforced your social status. So the wealthiest or the most important people in the room usually sat immediately to the right or to the left of the host. And so you would do everything that you could to go grab that seat. And when you picture these guests sort of sizing each other up and scurrying to the right seats, you almost get embarrassed for them, don't you? You almost do until you realize you should almost be embarrassed for yourself because we're no different from them at all, are we? In what ways have you been chasing after that elusive seat of honor? Maybe you've been giving in to the lust to become a somebody in life, neighborhood, or in ministry. Maybe you've been craving recognition in the community, maybe in your own church. Or maybe you're mad at a member of your church or maybe your spouse or your children for not giving you the honor that you're sure you deserve. Corporately, the church often chases after these sorts of seats of honor at the tables of the world. Like Jesus' fellow dinner guests, rushing to sit close to the host, we can find ourselves angling for proximity to political power. Here's another example. The church is always tempted to chase after social acceptance, which makes us prone to adopt the latest gimmicks or fads in pursuit of so-called relevance. Or we're tempted to clamor for the seats of cultural dominance in society, fearful of losing them. We see this in the church's growing discomfort with the, the gradual decentering of Christian faith and morality in American society. And that's despite the fact that the church throughout history has always been at her most fruitful when she has served the world from its margins. But we don't like the view from there because we want to sit in the seats of honor. Jesus calls us to a deep humility. He says in verse 8, do not sit down in a place of honor. And in verse 10, but when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke calls that portion a, a parable. In verse 7, which tells you that Jesus wasn't simply giving advice about seating etiquette. Hedge your bets, stay modest, you won't be embarrassed. 
Jesus is actually talking about our posture before God. It's the humble who will be received by the divine host. And it's those who are filled with a spirit of self-exaltation, always taking that highest place, who will be met with divine humiliation. But here's hope. Jesus gives us hope. Those who give up on the places of honor and instead humbly take the lowest place will be seated at the Father's table. God has called you his friend. He has exalted you in the gospel. And when you know you've got the highest seat of honor at the greatest table served by the greatest host, the king of kings, you can start to let go of that chase after other tables and seats of honor, can't you? When the PCA wants to do something as a denomination, it depends on the AC. When the PCA wants to get together and conduct the business of the church, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate General Assembly. When the PCA wants to maintain relationships with other denominations, the PCA depends on AC to coordinate interchurch relations. When the PCA wants to study an important matter, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate study committees. When the PCA needs to hear and rule on important discipline cases, the PCA depends on the AC to coordinate the work of the Standing Judicial Commission. The PCA depends on the AC, and the AC depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about our work and how you can support it at PCAAC.org. Dear friends, by God's grace, will we be a people of gospel modesty, even humble marginality? What would it be like for the PCA to be best known of all things for its humility? A table of honesty, a table of humility. Finally, we see a table of hospitality. Just then, Jesus turns to the host, the man who had invited him. Jesus is very bold. In verse 12, he says this, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus isn't saying, never invite your friends, never invite relatives into your home. Uh, notice, his main concern here is when they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And what Jesus is referring to is this. In that time, the custom was that when you gave a gift, the recipient was formally obligated to return the favor. Gifts, favors, invitations were never truly free, never truly gifts. 
They always had strings attached. In fact, the entire society in that time was built on this scratch my back and I'll scratch your back back relational system. And so you can see how this might have impacted the motives of your heart. You really only invited people that were of personal benefit to you. You might also see how this practice would have reinforced existing social boundaries because you'd only invite people who were of a similar class or tribe, and you wouldn't invite anyone, no way, who didn't have the means to pay you back. As one commentator put it, Jesus was speaking into a world in which invitations served as currency in the marketplace of prestige and power. But Jesus says there's a better way. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, Jesus is calling us to radical hospitality. The entire passage with its tables and dining and hosts and guests is really about hospitality. Now, hospitality, that's a word that might feel a little bit out of context here. Because we today associate hospitality with entertaining, dinner parties with friends. And it might include that, but biblically, we must understand it is so much more. Biblical hospitality is the welcome of strangers. You may know that the Greek word for hospitality itself is a combination of the word for love and the word for stranger. And strangers are not only people you don't personally know. Strangers are people who are strangers to the world disconnected from basic relationships that provide a secure place for them in the world. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the ethnic outsider. John Owen describes such strangers as those who really stand in need of help and refreshment. Strangers are not only people you don't know, they're people who are strange to you, who are different from you economically and ethnically. You see, as the Bible would have it, true hospitality is the welcome of such as these. In her incredible book on the biblical tradition of hospitality, Dr. Christine Pohl laments, as we ought to lament, that hospitality has been emptied of its moral significance. She writes, although we think of hospitality as tame and pleasant, Christian hospitality has always had a subversive countercultural dimension. 
throughout the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles. We hear about the early church disrupting social barriers by their hospitality, by the way they ate, with whom they ate, and how they shared their living space. They transcended economic and ethnic differences by sharing their meals, their homes, and their worship with people of different backgrounds. In fact, in the apostolic period, this welcome of strangers was understood to be so central to the call of the gospel and the ministry of the church that being hospitable, as you know, is listed among qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, by which Paul means not simply someone who throws great cocktail parties for friends, but someone who welcomes the poor and the marginalized into the intimate spaces of his home and life and leads the church to do the same. The reformers, they clearly rejected the indulgence and the self-promotion that was so associated with late medieval practices of hospitality. Instead, the reformers recovered a, a rich biblical and patristic vision of hospitality as care for the poor and for foreign and needy exiles. John Calvin described hospitality as a sacred kind of humanity. And, you may know, under his leadership, Geneva became famous for its radical hospitality towards refugees. And, of course, they were simply paying attention to passages in Scripture like ours in Luke 14. What would it look like for us to pay attention to? Not only individually in our homes, but also in the church. After all, if the Pauline epistles call the church the household of God, wouldn't it be fitting to ask how the church, too, can be hospitable, can be a place of the welcome of strangers like this? And so tonight I ask, what would it be like for the PCA to be an ecclesiastical family that practices radical hospitality? A place where the stranger is welcomed. A place where the urban poor and the rural poor can find a home. Together with the orphan, widow, and sojourning refugee. And not simply as an object of compassion ministry, but as a contributing member of God's family. Oh Lord, grant... Grant that we would be a communion of such hospitality, that we'd one day see economic diversity reflected even in the fellowship of General Assembly. What would it be like for the PCA to be a place where racial strangers are more radically welcomed in? A place where ethnic outsiders begin to feel more at home instead of feeling alone or foreign or forever other rather than a sister or brother. 
A place where we are careful not to treat a family member like a guest. Because a guest takes a seat and eats. But a family member, a family member gets to decide the menu, buys the groceries, cooks the food, till eventually the whole house smells a little bit more like them, you see, and you better believe I'm thinking about kimchi. <laughs> Can you imagine being and becoming a hospitable place, dear friends, where minorities are not only visible in church membership, but also increasingly in denominational leadership, a place where we can give God praise as we should for recent advances in racial reconciliation, but where we can also be hungry for more. Because the ultimate goal isn't just harmony, but cross-cultural equity and mutual dependency. And most of all, God-honoring doxology, worshiping with one voice, the one who died to make us one. Because we do all this to the praise and the glory of Christ. Let the people say amen. amen. And someone says, sign me up, let's do it. But I feel weak. Where do we start? Where do we find the spiritual power to become a more hospitable place, a more welcoming place for strangers such as these? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And immediately after Jesus says this in the next verse, not printed there for you, one of the other guests exclaims, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Because he knew that Jesus was referring to places in scripture like Isaiah 25, where the prophet promises that at the end of history, the day when death itself will die, resurrection, there's going to be a feast. A feast of rich food, says Isaiah. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. And the Apostle John picks up on this theme, this vision, in Revelation 19, painting a similar picture of the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth, describing it as what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, Jesus points us to this promise that all those who are in Christ will enjoy an eternal feast and a seat at Christ's table. We'll receive it in fullness one day and it'll never run out, but we experience it here and now proleptically by faith. 
Friends, here's good news. You have a seat at the table of Jesus. Do you want to extend yourself in kingdom hospitality towards strangers? Then you got to receive the hospitality of God in the gospel. So come to the table where you've been seated in Christ with no strings attached, not at this table. Come to the table, to the table of the one who had the ultimate seat of honor, seated in the highest place in heaven, but gave it up and took the lowest place of utter humiliation, even unto death, even unto hell itself, suffering the wrath of God for our sins and self-righteousness. The one who was called the Son, but on the cross was treated like a stranger. As we heard him cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that by grace alone, sinner strangers like you and me might be welcomed as daughters and sons. And don't you know Christ has given you a seat? He's given you his seat, his place of honor, which you didn't earn and didn't deserve and don't deserve, but in which you enjoy all the favor and all the delight of our Heavenly Father because of Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So come to the table. Come to the table with repentant honesty about your self-righteousness and all the ways that you know you don't deserve to be at the table, though you're seated there by grace. Come to the table. Stop chasing after those seats of honor at the tables of the world. Come to the table and welcome strangers to the table. And come to the table, dear brothers and sisters, because don't you know you're seated at the table. You're seated at his table. You're seated at the table. Let's pray. We believe, O oh Lord, help us in our unbelief. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that your gospel may be ever more true to us and change our lives and change our church and change our communities and change our world. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory and all God's people said together, Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.